This is an ABC podcast. Four decades ago, Percy Brown was charged with murder in the WA outback. Now he wants justice for the crime he insists he didn't commit. I was interviewed all day. I was given saying no, 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 no. And the crack shearing team that floated through a forest and flooded northern Victoria to help a mate out. Luckily, when we got through all these flooded paddocks and pretty much boating over the top of fences to get there, that's how deep the water was. Um, yeah, we found the sheep was still dry and everything that was dropped there was there. So it was just a matter of getting uh, into action and setting up the yards and getting the sheep in and, and getting stuck into it. I'm Sinead Mangan and this is Australia Wide, coming to you from Wajuk Country. To the floods in Australia's southeast, the rain has not let up, with heavy rain battering large parts of New South Wales and flash flooding predicted in low-lying coastal areas. A rain band is extending from the Northern Rivers region to Greater Sydney. A moderate flooding is likely at Lismore from this afternoon that was revised down from a major flood risk, with the flood peak due to hit this evening. It's the third time residents in the Northern River have faced flooding in eight months. Further south, the Murray River keeps rising at the border communities of Echuca and Moama, putting increased strain on the town's flood defences. And our reporter, Sarah Lawrence, is in Echuca in northern Victoria. Sarah, how are the conditions in Echuca right now? It's very, very rainy. It's all day, all day rain. It's glum, it's cloudy. There's been 34 mils overnight and we're yet to confirm exactly how many today. But, I mean, based on the rain all day, it's not looking good for the community. Is there an estimation of when the river is expected to peak? There was lots of talk that it would happen today, but it seems like it's exceeding its expected peak. So it's currently at 94.92 metres, or the, that's the, the t- AHD, I think, is the termination that they use to, to say how high the river is. And that's I think it started the day at 94.89, so it's very slowly rising and it hasn't peaked. And the modelling suggests that it could be this way for the next 10 days. The community has been furiously sandbagging and you know, trying to put up as many measures as possible to keep the water back. How are they coping those measures? They're starting to work or, or to, to help a little bit. The 2.5 kilometre levee that was built has seems to be have saved a lot of homes but on the other side there's dozens of homes that have been impacted so it's a it's a bit of a catch-22 you know some homes have benefited and others have had the full impact of a flood entering their home and for people who've chosen to stay have they been able to access staples and supplies they have if you look on social media there's some fantastic vision of People getting on their kayaks and getting in their titties and yeah. going out and dropping off stuff to their mates. It's, it's really lovely and it shows what a tight-knit community it is. Um, I believe some of the shops have started to reopen on the main street in Echuca. In, in have you been out along the main street? We have, we have. We we went along. It's still very quiet, but it was nice to see a few of the clothing stores had reopened and put their clothes out on the street. There were 
There were one or two cafes that put their tables out and people were starting to sit again. We went to a nail shop that had reopened and an iPhone shop that had reopened. uh, Sorry, an iPhone repair shop because, importantly, people have been dropping their phones in the water and they need their screens fixed. Of course, yeah. And then, you know, above all, haircuts. I mean, two things that you need in life, a roof over your head and a good haircut. So, of course, the barber was reopened. So... Yeah, so there's a little bit of life starting to come back and a lot of the business owners were saying that with this levy, they're feeling more confident and comfortable that they can reopen again. And for those on the wrong side of the levy, how are they coping? They're, I think the best adjective to use would be miffed. At this stage, maybe some of them might say a little bit stronger, they're annoyed, they're frustrated it's it's really mixed emotions because they're you know having to bear the brunt of the rest of their community being able to at this point in time be saved from the floods and some of them are starting to ask questions about what the you know who made this decision why the council made this decision and when I was in Rochester last week and spoke to the mayor, they had a similar situation where in 2020, a flood levy was actually knocked back by the council because it would have cost $7 million. So I think going forward, we're going to see some really robust conversations with the Compassby shy because residents have got a lot of big question marks over things. Sarah Lawrence, our reporter in Echuca, thanks for catching up with us in Australia Wide. Thank you. You're listening to ABC Australia Wide. You've probably seen the vision of the enormous rounds people have gone to to chip in and help out as water levels have risen in these river communities. The rising water is suffocating houses and farms and many farmers have grave concerns for the well-being of their animals. And this is where a crack team of shearers were called in to help a mate. His sheep were marooned by kilometres of water near Turrambarri, near Echuca, that were desperate in need of shearing. Without it, they'd get sick. The equipment they needed was airdropped in and the A-grade shearers floated through the Paracuta forest to dry land to shear the sheep. Here's Luke Barlow from Moama telling Warwick Long what happened next. It was probably a four and a half kilometre journey in through the forests, which you can normally drive in no problem at all, but we were parked pretty much where the bitumen stopped and, and yeah, pushed the boat for some time till the water was deep enough to drop the motor in and then, then carried on motoring in there. So with all the shearing gear, the, the four of you venture in there, what did you find once you got to where the sheep were? Oh, well, <laughs> we, did, we weren't really sure because the farmer hadn't um, been in there sort of four or five days. He said there's every possibility they could be, like everything they dropped in there could be underwater and we'd have to move it up on top of a higher bank or something. So we weren't sure how long we were going to be in there, what we were in for. It was a bit of a um, discovery mission. But uh, luckily, when we got through all these flooded paddocks and pretty much boating over the top of fences to get there, that's how deep the water was. Um, yeah, we found the sheep was still dry and everything that was dropped there was there. So it was just a matter of getting uh, into action and setting up the yards and getting the sheep in and, and getting stuck into it. And what was it like once you got stuck into it? Did you get the job done? We didn't take any dogs in there because we feared there might be a lot of snakes, obviously, if it's the only dry bit of ground for many kilometres. But um, so, yeah, we managed to get them in. With the, they dropped a quad bike in there as well with the yards. We just got started when a thunderstorm came through and just absolutely saturated everything. But we were prepared for that with our wet weather gear. But, you know, the, obviously the sheep were 
saturated and uh, the yards were just a, a slippery mud mess. There was only one way to get out and I was just get into it and get the job done. And get the job done, they did. That's Luke Barlow from near Moama on the New South Wales Victoria border and he was speaking there to Warwick Long. You're listening to Australia Wide. On ABC Radio. 40 years ago, Percy Brown was convicted of murder. A crime, he says, he did not commit, but one he was forced to confess to. The Walmajari man from the Kimberley in WA is now on a mission to have his case reviewed. Jessica Hayes has this story. Returning to Fitzroy Crossing in WA's central Kimberley stirs mixed emotions in Percy Brown. It's his country and the place of his people, but it's also where he was charged with a murder he insists he didn't commit. I'm innocent from that day. Couldn't have finished interviewing me and forcing me to do that. To right now where I'm sitting, you're questioning me. I'm still innocent. On the banks of the Fitzroy River in 1979, a man was found dead. Just hours earlier, Percy had been caught sleeping with the victim's wife. I was running away before you might hit me or kill me. I ran, ran down there, got across the creek there, going up. And I decided to keep one yonder. But the old fellow is alive. Police focused their attention on the then scrawny 20-year-old Walmajari man. And Percy says he was pressured to sign a confession. I was interviewed all day. I've been keep on saying no, 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 no. Until they got that detector from Canada. And after they were threatening me. And a court rejected that claim. And he spent five long years in prison. I remember I... Obviously, prior to trial, had conversations with him, and he was a very young, I think he was early 20s, uh, indigenous man from the Kimberley. He was very soft, soft-voiced, soft, uh, and softly spoken, reticent, whispered, hard to get a word out of him, and shy. And, and I, I just, I didn't think he had it in him to, to do what was done. I mean, the deceased was beaten to death was a, with a piece of wood I think, I can't recall, but a stick or a piece of wood, multiple blows and that that takes either unbelievable rage or or a certain heavy criminal criminal tendency that not many people have and I don't recall that Percy had any violent history, I mean he had a minor criminal history but I don't recall any history of violence so I really didn't think that he had it in him. That's retired District Court judge and former WA Prison Review Board chairperson Alan Fenbury. He was Percy's defence lawyer at the time and he says language was often a barrier for accused Indigenous men. It was a constant problem with legal representation, defence work at that time. The uh, uh, police officers would interview the suspect. They, the, they would read him his rights, so to speak, give him a caution, as they were obliged to do under the, under the law. Um, but it, it was very difficult to, to know whether the accused really appreciated they had a right to silence. And uh, I've often thought, this bloke doesn't have a clue what a confession is or a caution. Um, 
and that was a frustration, professional frustration, continually in these cases. The prosecution's case was also based on some footprints at the crime scene. Mr Fenbury believed that was insufficient, a point he made in court at the time while cross-examining a detective, questioning... Is there any other scientific evidence that you know of that connects this man with the killing? To which the detective answered... No. The local community had also raised concerns about the conviction. A meeting was convened by local elders with police, as a young journalist, Steve Hawke, witnessed the resistance firsthand. They'd undertaken their own investigations in terms of Aboriginal law and they, they told me that another man had done it and that man was now being punished under the Aboriginal law. And he was amazed by what he saw. I think the detective by the end was more or less convinced that Percy was innocent and that uh, there'd been a miscarriage of justice, but he said that there's nothing that can be done about it unless you either hand over the man you believe did it or, or there's fresh evidence emerges and there was no, no way that could be done. So Percy served his sentence. Ironically, Percy now works for the courts as a Creole interpreter, helping other First Nations people navigate the system. Because it's not only me, there's a lot of Aboriginal people were innocent. He now wants his case revisited and ultimately overturned. And he says it's an issue that's much bigger than himself. Because they're my family, we are black, the Australian people, to help them. No? That's my job. I was picked to be interpreter. I didn't pick myself and put myself in there. I was nominated. Community leaders in Fitzroy Crossing, like Joe Ross, agree. There needs to be a process of healing, healing for people. And if... if uh, people have been wrong done by and being accused of things and sent to jail, of course you've got to try and find a way of healing and to be able to say the thing, it was the wrong thing to do. You know? WA Police wouldn't comment on this particular case, but the force has previously acknowledged past wrongdoings, including in 2018 when the former WA Police Commissioner Chris Dawson apologised for the mistreatment of the state's Indigenous people at the hands of police. Tony Colfer, who is the superintendent of the Aboriginal Affairs Division, says things are now improving. Oh, look, uh, there's always work to be done. Um, but look, obviously, no, over, the, over the last five years, we've definitely uh, made headway. We're definitely work, uh, working uh, hard. and We're working in, in the direction that, um, that in relation to the, with the community, in partnership, working together to achieve results. Uh, I think it's really important, um, it's always about that two-way learning and we're learning off each other uh, and it's about understanding local needs and working with the community uh, to make sure that we understand their needs and we work towards resolving some of those issues that are impacting on them individually and within their community. For now though, Percy still holds out hope that the many questions that have haunted his life for more than 40 years can finally be put to rest. Jessica Hayes with that story from Broome in Western Australia. You're listening to Australia Wide on ABC Radio. And you're with me, Sinead Mangan. Like many regional towns, Smythesdale in regional Victoria has struggled to hang on to its doctors and medical services. But when the last remaining GP moved out of town, locals petitioned the council to step up and they were successful. Rochelle Kirkham has the story. Residents in the country town of Smythesdale have a pub, a supermarket, a police station and two vets. But for the last four months, they've had no local doctor. 
Ballarat Community Health had run a medical clinic in the town for seven years, but moved the last remaining GP out into a Ballarat clinic at the start of July. At the time, the CEO said a review found it was no longer financially viable to run the Smysdale Clinic, and they had been unsuccessful in filling a vacant role. Residents Graeme Turnbull and Linda Hocking Turnbull say the decision sparked anger and distress throughout the town. We have got quite an older population and a lot of those don't drive. So the fact that we actually had a doctor's surgery here, plus allied health services, plus a pharmacy, was ideal for those people. And of course, once Ballarat Community Health pulled out, that left no medical services. A lot of people were quite distressed because how the heck were they going to get into Ballarat? We don't have a regular bus service here. We're not on a bus route. We don't have a taxi service. We felt very let down in the fact that there was no public consultation. Graham and Linda started a petition to bring the medical clinic back. It gathered 860 signatures within three weeks in a town of just over 1,000 people, with residents from surrounding districts adding their names in too. Golden Plains Shire Mayor Gavin Gamble says the council got to work quickly to figure out a way to help get GPs back to the town. We had clear consensus and direction from the community that there was a needed facility and we always believed that it was a viable facility commercially, so it was just a question of helping to get it started. The council decided to make its own moves to help attract new doctors by fitting out clinic rooms in an existing council building with specialist medical equipment and furniture, breaking down that initial cost barrier. Funding pitches were successful with $50,000 coming from the state government and the same amount from Global Power Generation Australia, which operates Berrybank Wind Farm in the Shire. Now the council has announced it has managed to attract two GPs who expected to start at the clinic in mid-November. Royal Australian College of General Practitioners President Professor Karen Price says this type of local innovation could help address GP shortages in other towns. The council needs to celebrate what they've done because it's a great model to show other areas of what they can do to attract doctors into the area, to appreciate that the costs of setting up a clinic aren't like it happened in the old days where a doctor might purchase a property and they operated a clinic out of that property, which they also lived in. That's different. Now we have a separate infrastructure cost and that's quite a significant capital investment up front for a young graduate. So these are the sorts of models that we're looking at trying to develop and encourage, and it's always a local community that innovates rather than uh, big government pushes. It's always a local community that, that tries to provide the solution and often does. Professor Price says medical clinic setup costs can be a big barrier to attracting new GPs. Often you want a younger doctor who's coming out with a hex debt needed to buy their own house and needing to set up their own family needs. And so the combination of costs is quite significant. Plus, depending on the area, often rural and regional suffers from a socioeconomic disadvantage. So the clinic that you set up may well have to charge at the lower end or bulk bill. And as we know, that's not sustainable for ongoing costs of supporting that infrastructure. It's not because we don't want to do the medicine. We love that medicine. It's often the most meaningful medicine. But it's because, you know, to deliver people with a high quality service, we need to be able to have the infrastructure that supports that and that costs money. Back in Smythesdale, Linda and Graham say residents are celebrating the news. The public response has been fantastic. It happened to be our market day, so the buzz around the market was really pleasing. The fact that they felt like we hadn't been forgotten. 
so that was great. They did a great job, and quite frankly, I was amazed that they came back with the answer that we got the other day in such a short space of time. That was a very quick turnaround. Yeah, because otherwise it could have been 12 or 18 months down the track before we actually got new doctors in. Graham Turnbull ending that story from Rochelle Kirkham. The remote Nullarbor National Park along the Great Australian Bight in South Australia has strong cultural significance to several groups of Aboriginal people, including the Murning, Wurrungu and Yalata people. Every year for the past 15 years, children from community take a trip to the coast to see the whales pass the head of the bight. There is great excitement to see the gentle giants of the sea firsthand, as Brooke Nindorf found out. It's wild day for the students at Yellata and a new school. Do they keep blasting the water at the little thing? Yeah, they keep blasting the water. Yeah. And they make funny noises. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That was Deshaun. He was spending the day with his schoolmates and other community members at the head of the bight to connect with country and the marine park too and to marvel at their giant neighbours. The Nullarbor National Park has areas of strong cultural significance to the Murning, Wurrungu and Yalata Aboriginal people. The whale is the totem and dreaming for the Nullarbor Murning people. Yalata elder Maureen Smart says Whale Day was important for the community. This place is most important for all of the far west coast and the people of the far north and western Australia because they're dreaming lays across here from the inland out to the sea. And our visitors came here from the start when there was nothing here and we used the whole highways, all tracks, and used to go and camp with the youth camp along the sand hills up there and talk about stories there and do dancing, camping with the youth camp. Maureen says she has shared many stories at the Yalata Ananu School, but it's also important to share the stories with visitors as well. So we all enjoying this place today as we come and visit what's on this edge of the cliff. Most important for all the tourists all over the world to come and visit this land. Yalata Ananu School Principal Terry Casey was overseeing the excitement from the children and says this year's trip was especially exciting. Yeah, so COVID has caused us not to be able to travel a lot. So this is probably one of the major outings that we've had for quite a while at the school. Um, Last year there was hardly anything. We've done a couple of small trips this year, but we hope to be able to travel around a little bit more in the the future for the rest of the year. So the importance is um, for the kids to understand what their land entails and what part of their land is. And part of their land is, of course, the ocean because we're so close to the the bite. So we bring them down here to see the whales so they can understand how the whales continue to come back to this country, which is their country. Whale Day involves the rangers from national parks as well as researchers from Curtin University's Great Australian Bite Right Whale Study. Bridget O'Shaughnessy has led the researchers this season to count the whales and photograph and document births and behaviour. She says it's great to be able to share her knowledge with the students. 
Yeah, so obviously it's really important to teach the next generation of marine scientists, really. Like, the kids are the next generation and to ensure that they're understanding the issues that are going on, the, the, the threats that these whales are facing and what they can do to help ensure that this, the head of bite stays a marine park and is protected for many more years to come. Do you get excited seeing them get excited and seeing other tourists get excited as yeah, well? Yeah, yeah, it is. So one of the points uh, where we count the whales is here at, you know, at the Whale Centre on the boardwalk and you know, we get a lot of people asking us what we're doing, how many whales we're counting, um, and we can kind of tell them while we're during our count, you know, they're, they're excited and the kids today, are, yeah, yeah, super excited. And it, it, it's a nice little reminder about why we're doing um, what we're doing, not just for research and not just for scientific journals, but also to bring that information to the general public. Lead researcher of Curtin University's Great Australian Bite Right Whale Study, Bridget O'Shaughnessy, ending that story from Brooke Neindorf and Jodie Hamilton. And that's Australia Wide for this Monday. Remember, if you do like stories from all around Australia, you can podcast Australia Wide whenever you want to. Just head to the ABC's Listen app and subscribe there. I'm Sinead Mangan. I hope you have a lovely evening. Cheerio. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.